morning, everyone. I would like to talk to you about keys. Probably have some keys in your pocket. Some of us have more than others. Keys let people in where they have permission to go, and keys keep people out of where they do not have permission to go. Keys open locked doors. Keys give us access to new worlds and opportunities. Imagine with me, let's play here for a moment. Imagine with me that you are holding an empty key ring. There it is in your hand. If you are alive today and you're listening to me, add a key to your key ring. You have the privilege of being alive. We should all now have one key on our individual key rings. Public math is dangerous, but I'm pretty sure zero plus one is one. So let's do an exercise together. If the following statements I say are true for you, then add a key to your key ring. If the statement is false for you, then remove a key. Here we go. I was born in the United States. I am a citizen of the United States. English is my first language. I completed high school. In fact, at this point, I'm going to add a key for each subsequent degree that I have. I am white. I am male. I do not have visible or invisible disabilities. I attended grade school with people I felt were like me. The curriculum in my school presented people like me as the founders of our society. I had health insurance growing up. I have health insurance now. My work holidays coincide with religious holidays that I celebrate. People like me are generally portrayed by the media positively. I've never been attacked or insulted because of my gender, ethnicity, age, or sexual orientation. I've never been passed over for an employment opportunity because of my gender, ethnicity, age, or sexual orientation. I can arrange to spend time in the company of people of my own race most of the time. I can avoid spending time with people whom I was trained to mistrust. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area I can afford and would want to live in. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can be pretty sure of having my voice heard in a group. I do not or would not have to educate my children to be aware of systemic racism for their own daily physical protection. I can do well in a challenging situation without being called a credit to my group. If I ask to talk to the person in charge, I'm pretty sure I will be facing a person like me. 
I can dream about my future endeavors, social, political, professional, or leisurely, without asking whether a person like myself would be accepted or allowed to do what I want to do. I feel welcomed and normal in all the usual walks of public life. We have begun, the statements are done, so relax. (laughs) We have begun a series of conversations about waking up. We started a new sermon series today and becoming more aware of our context and our culture. Jesus was constantly about the business of waking people up. His disciples came to him one day and they said, Who sinned that this man would be born with these disabilities? To which Jesus replied, Y'all need to wake up. God does not punish people vindictively for their parents' foolishness. One day an angry mob of men cast a woman into the dirt at Jesus' feet and with their accusations unleashed hellfire missiles on her demanding that Jesus also do the same. And Jesus shook them awake when he gave them permission to obliterate her only if they themselves were completely unblemished. So I wonder, what might Jesus be calling us to wake up to as his followers? We will discuss some of these things over the next several weeks. And this morning we are talking about waking up to privilege. Privilege. And as you just learned from our key ring exercise, we are each privileged in many different ways. For some of us, it would be dangerous to fall into a lake with this many keys in our pocket. We would sink right to the bottom. It's dangerous. Stay away from water. For others, your key ring is largely or altogether empty. I like this exercise because it helps me address the myth of meritocracy head on. This is the myth that the keys on my key ring have all been earned by the sweat of my brow, by my merits. It simply isn't true. And I've been waking up to this reality for the past couple of years now. I remember, I remember about a year and a half ago, I sold a car. An older white man came to my house to look at it, and he made me an offer, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll take that. But there was something I needed to disclose to him. I did not yet have the title for this car. I, just, I, don't, I hadn't filed the paperwork or something, but it was in the mail, really. It was in the mail on its way to me. And you weren't supposed to sell cars without handing over the title, but... You know, I said, hey, I don't have the title. What do you want to do? He looked at me. He looked me literally up and down, and he said, you look like I can trust you. Just mail it to me when you get it. And I've reflected quite a bit on this since it happened. What did he mean that I can trust you when he said that to me? Did I have special privileges or keys because I'm white? Dr. Peggy McIntosh, in her now-famous 1989 article entitled White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, writes that white privilege is an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in every day, but about which I am meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible, weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks that I can cash whenever I need to. Our opening exercise was adapted from her article. 
There was an exchange of currency that day other than the cash that that man gave to me for my car. I asked him to accept a credit card on my behalf in order to trust that I was telling the truth. And you see, I don't know that he would have done this for Jorge, my neighbor across the street, but he did it for me. What if I hadn't had on my business casual clothing? What if I had lived in a different neighborhood where yards are not as well kept and where he wouldn't find late model clean cars parked only on concrete or asphalt surfaces? That day, I used several keys to open a door that may not have been open to me otherwise. We're talking about waking up to privilege. Waking up to the privilege I live with has been a journey, and not one that I eagerly began. I remember as part of an educational program a few years ago, each of the members of the cohort group that I was a part of, uh, we were required to present on uh, our own culture. We had to do what's called a cultural autobiography. I received the syllabus, I read it over, I listened to the instructor tell us about it, but I was so confused. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to make of this. I went to the instructor and I said, I, I can't do this. I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't really have a culture. My culture is just normal. I cringe to think about that today, but yes, that's exactly what I said to her. I'm grateful for that instructor. She didn't bat an eye. She just said, well, give it a try. I think you'll find that you come from a particular culture in a particular context and it's probably unique from your peers. As I did the project I began to realize that I did come from a particular context with particular values and particular rules and taboos. I realized that I come from a small town surrounded largely by people similar to me in values and appearance. I began to trace some of the threads of my identity as a white male. For example, I was struck as I did this project, I realized, man, how important to my family it was that we have a well-manicured lawn. Man, a well-manicured lawn, why is this so important to us? What does it represent? I mean, every Saturday morning, my dad is out there mowing and edging and weed-eating and watering. And this yard represents something more than just grass or more than just preventing erosion. There's something going on here. What is this about? As I thought more about it, I realized that it communicated order and respectability and that we have means. These are often some markers of white identity, some markers to show that we are good people, we are trustworthy people. Never mind the lonely and sometimes scary island that we lived in amidst that well-manicured grass. What mattered was the grass. Part of the privilege that I've discovered I live with is that I have certain keys on my key ring because I am a male who generally follows masculine gender norms. I pretty much look like how my culture tells me I should look and dress for someone with my body parts. And this gives me the privilege of blending in with the crowd almost wherever I go. This has benefited me tremendously. The cashier at HEB knows how to address me and assumes positive things about me because my body parts and my clothes and grooming match how he or she thinks they should match. As a clergy person, I can walk into a hospital room and almost all the time be what someone expected when they asked for a chaplain 
or a minister. Some of my female colleagues have been asked to leave hospital rooms because of their gender, or they've been told they're very nice visitors, but please have a man come when it's time to pray. To me, it's quite ironic that men are often considered the leaders in religious communities because my experience has been that it's women who are most often the doers. Men often have the prominent positions, but women often make things happen. I've been convicted of this in my work so far with Aurelia and Fran. Do I feign ineptitude or underfunction with the expectation that they will pick up my slack? This is something I constantly have to check. I know this doesn't apply to everyone, but consider the image of the inept man who can't wash, fold, and iron his own laundry or adequately cook for himself, or when he cares for his own kids by himself in public, he's considered a, su a superhero. Will you look at that? A dad that's taking care of his kids. Oh my gosh. Give him a hand, people. But moms do that routinely without praise. Women do these very basic daily activities, and it's considered normal. Men who do them are considered remarkable. These attitudes uphold the system of male privilege where men are expected to do less than women or are congratulated for doing the same commonplace things that women do every single day. Male privilege is alive and well, and it seems appropriate to acknowledge this on Mother's Day. Another part of my journey of waking up to privilege has been to discover that I am part of what they call dominant culture. Have you heard this term? Dominant culture? I remember how much it made me squirm when I first was becoming familiar with it. It bothered me to no end. I went to that same instructor I told you about earlier, and I told her, you know, I, I find it offensive, actually, to use this term, dominant culture. It sounds so dominating. I'm not like that. I'm a good person. I don't dominate others. Maybe we can agree to use the term prevalent culture. I really said this. <laughs> to which she said, um, how about you keep reflecting on that and we'll talk about it another time. I suspect you all like this instructor, don't you? <laughs> Dominant culture is actually a pretty good name for a culture or system that takes what it wants, gets to name things what it wants, gets to make rules for others like who can marry whom and who can sleep with whom and if you have this body part then you must look this way or who can be where. I remember one of the students in that educational program told me about an experience he had a week prior. This was very fresh. He's a tall, muscular, dark-skinned black man. He's bivocational. He's a bivocational pastor, which means he pastors a church and he also has another job in order to meet his financial obligations. He was telling me about a cleaning company that he owns and how he was at one of his clients, a, a business. He, his company cleans their business. And he was there one day. He was waiting outside for some of his employees to arrive so he could give them instructions on cleaning. And while he was waiting, the receptionist for the business, a white woman, came outside and told him, you can't loiter here. You need to leave. He tried to explain to her, Ma'am, I, I own this business, this, this cleaning company. We have a contract with your company to clean uh, in here. And she said, well, you need to wait somewhere else. I, I don't want you waiting out here in front of the business. And so he went and he sat in his car. And his story 
is really not that different from the two black men that were arrested in a Philadelphia Starbucks last month because they were waiting for a business associate to meet them before they ordered their drinks. As I thought about these experiences, I thought about how I can loiter wherever I want. I do it all the time. I'm like a professional loiterer. I just wait places. That's what I do as a chaplain. I'm a professional loiterer. I hang around nurses' stations. I hang around rooms. I drop in, eavesdrop. Hey, what's going on? I loiter for a living. That's a privilege that I have. And people are rather nice to me while I, while I loiter. They say, hey, can I get you some water? Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. I have that privilege, and as I've reflected on that privilege, I'm coming to realize that I am part of something larger. There's something larger going on. These keys on my key ring came from somewhere and are kept there intentionally. The 20th century American novelist and social critic James Baldwin, a black man, wrote an essay in 1984 entitled On Being White and Other Lies. And in this article, he said that there really is no white community and that no one was white before they came to America. Instead, what happened was that a motley group of immigrants came together and established a hierarchical system, a way of living in the world that creates insiders and outsiders, those that have easy access to intangible goods and those that have to fight and claw for it, those that have a key ring full of keys just given to them, and those that don't. He argued that whiteness is an oppressive system of rules and expectations and rewards or punishments for living or not living up to those rules and expectations. And I wonder if this isn't an example of what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he penned the words of Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Our struggle, he says, is, is against a system of power and oppression and exploitation, a culture that creates insiders and outsiders that unduly favors some and leaves others with scraps. So, as I stand here this morning... I realize more than ever that I am at a fork in the road. I can continue to believe in the myth of meritocracy, to believe that my efforts have led to the success I have in this life. I can continue to ignore the significant key disparities in our world, in my community, in my places of work, in this very room, and probably even on the row that you're sitting on. I can continue to forget that I am pretty close to the top of a pyramid that has been built on stolen land and in many ways built with stolen labor. That's my privilege. I can ignore all of that. Or my faith could compel me to action. Despite all of its faults and failings, I am drawn to a community of Jesus followers because Jesus is always turning the world upside down. Or maybe I should say, right side up. He says in Matthew 20, 25, that those in power in this world use it to their advantage, but that those who want to live right side up in this world, God's way, must be the servant of others. And whoever wants to be on top must be at the bottom. In other words, must be on the side of the outsider and the oppressed. 
and the powerless. <coughs> but I wonder, what does that look like for us, peace? How do we dismantle structures and systems of privilege? I think the first step is for us to become aware of their impact on our lives. What if some of the language I'm using today became part of our common vernacular? Just as we often use the words welcoming, inclusive, safe, hospitable, maybe one day we can use words like privileged, dominant, cultural imperialism, cultural appropriation, microaggressions, systematic injustice. Words like this will become part of our common vocabulary as we become sensitive to who we favor and we disfavor. There's more to learn about these things than we have time to get into today, and certainly more to know about these topics than I can teach you as a heterosexual, cisgender, professional, class, over-educated white male. We need the voices of those who have other experiences with these dynamics to bring them to life for us. Maybe we can commit some of our small group time over the next year to learning about these things. But my hope is that we will move beyond growing in awareness of them and we will learn to live differently and relate to one another differently. Here at Peace, we like to say that all belong, but how do we live that way? Earlier, Augie read the words from Isaiah 11, where the prophet offers a vision of what the world is like when turned right side up. When we live according to God's ways, the prophet writes, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into a viper's pit. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Drawing from that imagery, the Episcopal priest Eric Law wrote a book entitled, The Wolf Shall Dwell with the Lamb. And in this book, he proposes how power and privilege might be shared equitably, rather than letting only a privileged few be in control. He says, in any group, there are wolves and there are lambs. This is the world in which we live. The wolves are people that have been taught by society to go after what they want, to use resources to claim their needs and their space. Wolves are people that society handed a key ring full of keys. The lambs, he says, are people that have been taught by society that they need to be small. They've been taught by society not to ask for much, to defer to others, to let others have the resources and the spotlight. Lambs have been given a key or two and told to be grateful that you were even given that much. Eric Law proposes that in God's realm, the two dwell together, the wolf and the lamb, and they share power and privilege and resources. He says that the way this happens is those who are of a wolf inclination need to practice the spirituality of the cross. They need to crucify their desire to always go first, to have the spotlight and positions of prominence, maybe even their insensitivity to interrupting and dominating others. Additionally, those of a lamb inclination need to practice a spirituality of resurrection. 
of new life. They need to take the risk to speak up, to claim their space more, to put themselves out there more, to challenge the way power is distributed in a group setting. And eventually, he says, a cycle develops where the wolves become lambs and the lambs become wolves and the member of the community, all the members of the community are able to practice both a spirituality of the cross, of dying to themselves, and a spirituality of resurrection where they are living into this new, bold life. And eventually power and privilege and resources are constantly being shared and flowing around where they are needed. Practically speaking, you might think about this next time you're in a small group. Notice, who often speaks first and speaks most? I suspect it's a white male. That's what we've been taught to do. Who gets interrupted? Whose voice and ideas are acknowledged and whose voice and ideas are dismissed? When we begin to attend to these dynamics, we are helping our community move closer to God's vision of community where all of God's creatures can dwell together. We might think about this as we continue to partner with other organizations in interfaith work. Can we partner with a group from a non-dominant culture, say a Korean-American faith community or a Muslim community, and not be in control, not be the primary decision maker? Can we serve in a support capacity? I cannot take all the keys off my key ring, but I can choose not to use them all mindlessly. There are many ways that our community can live more into God's vision of reality where the wolf and the lamb dwell together in peace. I've proposed a few ideas here this morning, and I'm sure many of you have ideas to help us live more like God is calling us to live. I also realize that this is a lifelong journey for us as individuals and as a church. I can guarantee we will make missteps along this journey. In fact, as much as I've tried to avoid it, I've probably said something insensitive during these few minutes. I'm blind to my own privilege often, and I'm still in many ways captive to my own biases. And I'm open to you helping me see that. This is why I need community. I cannot follow Jesus more faithfully without you. We cannot do it without one another. Our church cannot do it in isolation from other communities. This is the water we are being called to wade into. May God give us grace and courage and humility and thick skin as we do so. Amen.